I gotta pour a little, do a little ASMR real quick. Get get the shot going down my gullet. Need to drink the pain away, if you know what I'm saying. Bottoms up. You heard that, people? That's that's the sound of true pain. And the pain started today when Nick Chubb pulled up on that 59-yard, would have been touchdown run, stopped at the one-yard line. And it's not even the six points, Joey. It's the principle. <laughs> if you're going to make that play, why run the 59 yards and get my hopes up? Just stop after you get the first down. You don't have to make me think you're going to go all the way if you're just going to salt the game. Absolutely brutal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were on it. Nick Chubb this week coming off of IR, coming off a knee injury. People were going to fade him at 6,800. Ended up coming in at, what, under 10% owned in tournaments. Scored 21 points, which is great. Obviously would have had six more if he scores that touchdown, but he wants to, you know, be a better real life player than fantasy player, I guess. Imagine. Or he cares about the win that much where he thinks that the trash ass Texans are, are going to come back down by 10 if they get the ball back. <sighs> Makes no sense. I mean, process wise, we were all over it though. So got to look at the bright side on that. You were on it. At least you had at least you have that to to bask in. You were on the Nick Chubb train this this week and it worked out. Being right doesn't pay the bills. <laughs> I mean, I want to shout out Nick Chubb's efficiency though, because he only spent fifty nine yards breaking my heart. He could have simply ran two hundred sixty miles from the Brown Stadium to my front door, held me up at gunpoint, taken my wallet and all the money in my safe, and gotten the same thing accomplished. So at least he was efficient with with the amount of effort. <laughs> oh, Tough day. what a what a brutal day. <laughs> pain, just just pure pain. going on everybody welcome to episode 106 of the dfs dose podcast your fix of daily fantasy sports information strategy and analysis yes this will indeed be the pain cast part two pure pain from myself your host ben hover joined as i always am by an equally suffering joey carrion and on today's show we're going to recap all of the action from week 10 in the NFL from a DFS perspective. We will review the most popular cash game plays and the decision points you had to make around them. On this slate, we'll talk about our results, what it took to win a million dollars on DraftKings this week, and of course, we'll close out the show with some of the most interesting stats of the week. But before we do any of that, Joey, would you mind telling the people how they can support the podcast? You can support the podcast by following us on Twitter at the DFS Dose. That's where we tweet out all links to all of our content that we make may put out throughout the week so make sure you're following us over there then we obviously tweet some miscellaneous stuff here and there and then you can go ahead and make sure you are subscribed or follow to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you use whether that be apple spotify soundcloud etc just make sure you are subscribed to help helps us out a lot and then speaking of subscribing make sure you go subscribe to the dfs dose youtube channel we're at about 120 subs now so growing every single day we appreciate every sub over there and then if you guys want you can join our free discord chat that we just opened up to the public last week the link for that will be in the podcast 
description. If you just go look in the description, you can click on the link. Just make sure you have Discord downloaded. Then you'll be able to join our chat, ask us DFS questions, talk about whatever, and that is the best way to support us. Yeah, hop in there. It's a nice uh, growing community. Have like 10 people so far off the first week. Pretty good. And uh, yeah, join. Good conversations going on in there all week surrounding DFS. Now let's get into it. Starting off with the highest owned cash plays on the slate. These ownerships come from the massive $25 single entry double up on DraftKings at running back, as is the case every week. The chalk was obvious. Before the slate, Mike Davis at 79.9%. At the min price, everybody knew he was going to be the highest owned player on the slate. That turned out to be true, about 80% owned in cash. Aaron Jones was right behind him this week at 73.7%, and Duke Johnson at 55.3%. Kyler Murray, by far the highest owned quarterback of the slate at 50%. Some ownership spread between guys like Josh Allen and Justin Herbert behind him. Dallas Goddard was the chalk tight end for cash builds at 34.6% owned. And at wide receiver... Keenan Allen dominated ownership at 53%. Stefan Diggs was the next closest at 28.6%. And because the high 6K slash mid 7K range of wide receivers were so loaded, a lot of the wide receiver ownership outside of those top two guys got spread out. All of the guys in that range, Lockett, Woods, Cup, Terry McLaurin, Michael Thomas, they were all between 15 and 18% owned. In cash games, the cash line 118, a very low scoring week, as is the case when the chalk busts. Joey, how did you do in week 10? I mean, do I have to talk about it? Because it, it's, it, it's truly a tough scene. Just power through it. Power. <laughs> it's truly a tough scene over here. So my cash lineup ended up scoring 88 points. So 30 points off the cash line. Brutal. Just, just brutal. One, obviously no cash games. I don't even think I want a head to head. Just bothered to even stop looking at <laughs> at a certain point because it was just a f- big fat L. So obviously took a fat L in cash. But the bright side, I did salvage. So we went from, you know, going broke, living on the streets to salvaging. Shout out DeAndre Hopkins, uh, mossing three guys in the end zone. Uh, so I cashed in all my single entry tournaments. I cashed in the Millie Maker. So that, that softened the blow a little bit over here and... Uh, maybe we could talk about it after this just real quick, but shout out to late swap. Definitely a huge feature that you should have been using, especially on this slate when we had more afternoon games than early games. So I ended up swapping those tournament lineups to Stefan Diggs and DeAndre Hopkins from what I originally had. And obviously they both scored late touchdowns that which put me over. So that that's just a very important feature that should have been in use today if you were playing correctly. Yeah, absolutely. Especially on a slate like this where there were actually more afternoon games than early games and a lot of popular plays in the Mm -hmm. later games. So a lot of salary left, a lot of PMR left for almost every lineup that was out there. Late swapping extremely important this week. I like Joey, terrible week, 2% win rate in cash games, my worst ever. Never thought I would top that week that I had last year with a 7% cash game win rate, but managed to do it, managed to do the impossible, won like three out of my 135 cash game head-to-heads um, and double-ups, just just a terrible, terrible week all around, scored a little bit more than Joey, 94.10, a lot of good it did me, still well under the cash line. Let's talk about the decision points. So before we get into the specific players and you know the decisions that we made around them, let's talk about roster construction, mm-hmm. zooming out a little bit. 
You and I had an extremely similar build. We had a 1v1. Evan Ingram versus Dallas Goddard at the tight end spot. You left a little more salary on the table, but our rosters were identical. Besides that, we both paid 8k for a quarterback, Kyler Murray. We both paid down at two out of our three running back spots for Duke Johnson and Mike Davis. We both played two wide receivers who were priced above 6500 So without any context or explanation, just looking purely at it from a roster construction standpoint, I would say from an outsider's perspective that this was a really fishy roster construction that both of us ran out there this week. Paid up at quarterback, paid down at running back, and paid up at wide receiver. Essentially, it feels like we were so focused on the chalk at running back that we forgot the basics of DFS and positional allocations and it potentially contributed to this L. So, I mean, give me your thoughts on that. Was this just a massive oversight that we both made, or did the roster end up being correct and we just ran freezing cold? Yeah, I think we just, you know, ran into the Ice Age. It's just that mm-hmm. simple. Um, I believe this week that the roster construction was correct from a process standpoint, you know, not getting too in depth about the plays again, but like when you have a player like Mike Davis coming into a starting role at the minimum and then Duke Johnson coming into a starting role, you know, and you could project for him to see all of the running back touches in Houston at 5k. I think those are two fairly obvious players that you have to plug into your cash lineup if you're playing cash games correctly. Now I will say with the weather with Deshaun Watson really never checking down. I was considering coming off Duke Johnson, but I didn't really like anybody in that same price range as much as him, maybe besides Antonio Gibson. But we saw in that game, you know, he's going to come off the field for JD McKissick. And we don't want that in a cash game running back from, you know, a process standpoint. So I was fine with playing both of those guys. And then obviously when you're spending 9,000 on two of your running back spots, you're going to have the salary to pay up to the high-priced wide receivers who have great floor-slash-ceiling combos, and basically they all just busted. That's what it came down to. So, I mean, roster construction-wise, I thought it was good. Um, Without any context, definitely, definitely a terrible construction, but with this slate, it was fine in my opinion. Okay, yeah, I mean... I I do think I agree with you, and I'm glad you brought up the Duke Johnson point because I think that he was significantly worse chalk than Mike Mm, Davis looking back at it Mm -hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. One, the price discrepancy. Mike Davis could completely destroy you at the min price at 4K. Duke Johnson, it's harder to do naturally. He's $1,000 more expensive, so he has to have $1,000 worth of better production to bury you. And looking at it a little bit more zoomed out, this was a game where the Texans were on the road they were underdogs. This game total dropped by eight and a half points due to weather concern. The Texans had a low total, 20.75, and we never would have played David Johnson in this spot. Yeah, no shot. Now, granted, no David shot. Johnson might have been 5,600 or 5,700, but it's not like you know we were getting a discount from a player who was like 8K like we were for CMC versus Mike Davis. It was a minimal discount, and I think that Duke Johnson was bad chalk, and we ate the chalk, and I think that that was a mistake. Looking back at this lineup, that was the thing that I was most disappointed in myself for not considering a pivot off of. Yeah, just the game environment was not good. The spot was not good, and it's not our fault that he ended up getting no reception, something I definitely didn't see coming. He had 14 attempts. He was the only Texans running back to touch the ball, but his pass game role, which was kind of the strength of 
Duke Johnson as a player, the thing that got him involved in this offense when David Johnson was healthy completely disappeared from him. I don't I don't think we could have predicted that. But at 55% owned, 45% of the cash game field faded him. And I think that that was the sharp play. I wish I had been on the sharper side of that decision point. Yeah, I definitely agree on that point. And I guess we kind of just got locked into Duke Johnson because I think there was a lot of groupthink about him just being a better player than David Johnson because you're absolutely correct. If David Johnson was 5k in this spot, I wouldn't have touched him personally because I think David Johnson is an absolute scrub, right? So I definitely agree on that point and I wish we would have considered coming off of Duke Johnson in this spot with all of the negative factors surrounding him pre-lock. Something we'll have to improve in our process going forward. Let's talk about the pivot. You and I both made the same pivot and this you know, goes into the late swap convo that we were just having. And the pivot that you and I both made was Cooper Cup and Keenan Allen in favor of Robert Woods and Michael Thomas. Mm. So Robert Woods actually ended up being higher owned in double ups than Cooper Cup. And I wonder if it's because a lot of people swapped off Cup initially just like we did. I thought Cup was one of the best pure plays on the board, and he only came in at 15% owned in double ups, which was less than what Woods ended up being. I mean, I guess just talk about that at first. I mean, none of the Rams wide receivers really popped off. It turns out that it was actually Josh Reynolds, who was the Rams wide receiver to own. But, you know, truthfully, all three of them suffered from the way that the Rams scored their touchdowns with three rushing touchdowns. Yeah, just very tilting. Uh, for the for me today, I had a lot of golf stacks, and you know when they get down into the five yard line, the ten yard line, the red zone area, they are literally just looking to run the ball, and that's what they did. They scored three rushing touchdowns. Malcolm Brown, of course, bum ass Malcolm Brown had two of those three touchdowns. So I mean, that's just how it goes in DFS. Um, I I just chalked that one up to variance. Golf ended up scoring fourteen points. If he scores those three touchdowns. You know, he he ends with 28, and it's a different story on this side of things. But just speaking about the Woods situation, the Woods and Cup situation, I was surprised that he did come in with higher ownership than Cup. And I and I like to think that is because Cup projected to be higher owned originally. But, you know, when you're losing, you have to utilize the feature that DraftKings allows to get off of that higher owned wide receiver and go down to Woods in the same game, you know, with a decent floor and I would say roughly as high of a ceiling as cups. So it was a pretty easy pivot, especially since saving that 300 allowed you to get up to Michael Thomas from Keenan Allen, which didn't work out either. So (laughs) tough scene. (laughs) Yeah. And we can talk about that Michael Thomas thing in a second here, because that was, you know, truthfully the main part of the pivot you know, was getting off the Allen chalk in favor of Thomas, because I think that I agree with you that Cup and Woods were extremely similar as plays. I wrote this up in the cash pool article for week 10. And, you know, if you kind of took out the target discrepancy from Cooper Cup's 20 target game, the first seven weeks of the season, Cooper Cup and Robert Woods were averaging within like 0.71 targets of one another on a per game basis. So the difference between them, I think was minimal, which was why I was extremely comfortable getting off of Cup in favor of Woods. Both of them had a great matchup. But the one thing about this that I didn't take into account, which is something that I took into account weeks ago, and I talked about on this very podcast 
in the week where Jimmy Garoppolo was extremely popular as a paydown option was I never wanted to be on Jimmy Garoppolo because if this team, the 49ers, were able to do what they want in a given game, it would be to run the ball and have Jimmy G limited in his pass attempts. And that was the same situation. We know that the Rams are one of, if not the run heaviest team in the NFL. They don't want to be, you know, passing the game 60 times like they did in that Buffalo game. That's not how they want to play. And I guess that we all sort of blindly assume that, well, the Seahawks offense is so good that they're not going to have a choice. They're going to have to, but the Rams defense, they deserve the respect at this point. I mean, they really shut down the the Seahawks in this game and shut down Russ in this game. Mm -hmm. So I think that just assuming that these teams are going to play outside of the way that they want to play is a potential mistake that I overlooked in this spot. And it's something that I've taken into account in the past, but I got so invested in the matchup. And that, again, is a fishy tendency, I think. I I mean, matchup is important, especially when it's a matchup like this that is historically bad. And it's not just like a random defense. It's like, this is one of the worst passing defenses defenses against wide receivers that we've ever seen. So I do think it's worth considering. But again, I don't know. It's just part of the process. I I felt like I was not fully fleshed out in my process this week and and it came back to bite me. Want to take the accountability (laughs) for that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely am on the same page with you in terms of that. So, I mean, just a tough week. I I think just a very, very tough week. And sometimes it doesn't go your way. And you can sometimes make the right plays and that won't go your way either. Like, for example, the Michael Thomas pivot. Mm. And this was one that we both made. And I think from a pure strategy, from a game theory perspective, it made all the sense in the world. You know, Keenan Allen was 55, 56% owned in cash games. Michael Thomas was sitting around 16 to 18%, depending on what double up you were in. And, you know, Michael Thomas has arguably, if not definitively, a higher ceiling than Keenan Allen right? Or at least that's what we thought. So getting Michael Thomas for essentially the same price in that build at a third of the ownership, I think was fantastic leverage. I think it was the right play to make. But Michael Thomas, I mean, maybe he's just pure ass. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's over for him. Maybe it was a one-year blip. Maybe his season last year was Juju season two years ago. I don't know. What's up with Michael Thomas? Because God, that was tilting to see him finish with only 4.7 points or whatever it was in a week where Traquan Smith left the game. He still couldn't get catches, still couldn't rack up the catches. It was all Alvin Kamara, no Michael Thomas this week. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think that's the biggest reason why Michael Thomas failed is because Alvin Kamara succeeded and succeeded heavily, scored two touchdowns. Three. Three, oh, excuse me, scored three touchdowns. I didn't even see him score the third one. Oh, that was the one he scored like towards garbage time, right? I mean, okay, I don't think Michael Thomas is asked because, you know, he's in his fifth year of his career and he's had 1,100 yards in every single season of his career. So definitely not a blip last year because he's been one of the most consistent wide receivers since he's came into the NFL. Uh, and, you know, he's definitely still top 10 in my opinion. But from a process standpoint, from you know, a leverage standpoint, it was the right move to go down to a 19% owned Michael Thomas from a 53% owned Keenan Allen in cash games, especially since we were behind. So, I mean, I, I think it was the right thing to do and we did it and the result just didn't work out in our favor. I didn't watch that game, so I, I don't know really what happened. I know Drew Brees got hurt and I know Jameis Winston is a pretty terrible quarterback and missed him on a couple of end zone targets there at the end of the game. And 
he just he just ran bad i'd like to assume so michael thomas is still good just didn't work out this week and you know that that's all that's all i can say about that you know they say not just don't say anything if you don't have anything nice to say so i'm not i'm not gonna <laughs> step over the ledge here hey hey he's just he's just worried about getting dubs man uh, that's it yeah I, I guess getting dubs and running slants the only yeah, thing slant boy <laughs> all right enough enough is enough let's talk about somebody who's not feeling the pain this week a young lady who goes by the DraftKings screen name of megan joy wait wait uh, are you assuming her gender it's 2020 you know it's 2020 I, ben right. get with right, the program right, I apologize. There's a very good chance that Megan Joy could definitely be a catfish on DraftKings or a potential Bachelor Gate situation. But I don't want to take the credit away from her. Now, million dollar winning lineup, Megan Joy, 218.5 points. And her lineup, I think, was interesting. Kyler Murray to DeAndre Hopkins brought back with Cole Beasley, who absolutely popped off for 30.9 points at 4.5% ownership. So, Little three-piece correlation there, a single stack with a bring back. And then she smashed with five one-offs, Alvin Kamara and Josh Jacobs at running back, Deontay Johnson and Josh Reynolds as the other two wide receivers in a four-wide receiver build, Logan Thomas at tight end, shout out to Logan Thomas and Browns D at defense. So five one-offs in an uncorrelated defense with a single stack and a bring back, four players on this roster with sub 5% ownership, the cumulative ownership of this roster was 79.3. That is extremely contrarian. I mean, usually for a, a tournament like this, you would expect it to be around what, like 100, mm-hmm. 110 at the high range for a milli winner. Mm-hmm. 79.3 is is just nuts. A, a crazy contrarian lineup. Yeah, definitely contrarian to say the least. And, you know, shout out to this person for winning $1 million. And it's kind of like a situation that we saw with the winner last week where they just hit on a bunch of one-offs, which I think, you know, is hard to do, but it's happened two weeks in a row now. And, you know, shout out to these two people that have just ran into the absolute nuts. But I'm gonna say it again. You don't want to play tournaments like this. You want your tournaments to be as correlated as possible. I think sometimes you you do run into the high end of variance. You run into the 99th percentile outcome, which this person did with Camara, who scored three touchdowns, like we just talked about. Cole Beasley, DeAndre Hopkins scores a 43 yard touchdown to win the Cardinals the game. <laughs> stuff just breaks in people's favor and it did for this person so shout out to them uh from a lineup like the lineup wise i don't think it's as bad as the person who won it last week's was but no definitely not i don't like i mean this lineup obviously has very good players in it kyler d hop deontay Josh Jacobs, etc. Avoided the chalky low price running backs. That's something that we talked about mm-hmm. as being one of the biggest edges in tournaments was just getting off of the chalk build by paying up at running back, and she did that. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, I don't mind the team. I don't think it's great, but what what do I know? I haven't won a million dollars, so you know what? That's a fair point. I think it was a almost needlessly contrarian in some ways but it worked so i can't you know i can't say too much about it so shout out to megan congrats what a sweat coming down to that final play with kyler and hopkins to probably shoot you up the rankings must be nice 
Let's move on to the final segment of the show, the interesting stats portion. And we're going to look over some of the most interesting statistics that we saw come out of week 10. Now, Joey, we've been rightfully killing the 2020 rookie running back class over the past couple of episodes, but I think we have to give credit where it's due. DeAndre Swift officially broke out this week. It was announced about an hour before kickoff that Swift would get the start, and he took full advantage of that opportunity. Usually, in my opinion, you know, a start in Detroit means that they get to, you know, start walking out of the tunnel before ceding all the touches to Adrian Peterson, but that was not the case this week. DeAndre Swift actually got the legit start. 21 touches, 142 total yards, and a receiving touchdown, 25.2 DraftKings points, and he looked like the real deal doing it. Yeah, I mean, DeAndre Swift looked really good today against the Washington football team. And maybe we see Matt Patricia stop being an absolute stone donkey and make this man the starting running back from here on out. Make him the touch leader in the Lions backfield from here on out. Now, hopefully this trend, you know, keeps on trending in the right direction. Who knows with Matt Patricia? Adrian Peterson only saw five touches in this game and then on Johnson only saw one carry. So if we can get DeAndre Swift as a workhorse running back moving forward in fantasy, especially on DraftKings, if his price stays depressed under 6K, I think this is going to be a player that we're going to be targeting on a weekly basis, especially if Kenny Galladay is out for you know numerous games. I can't imagine any type of legitimate NFL coach seeing what they saw out of DeAndre Swift today and then reestablishing Adrian Peterson as the guy. But then again, Matt Patricia is, like you said, an absolute stone donkey. I mean, he did his absolute best to throw away a huge lead in this game. I mean, the Washington football team really should have won this game if Matt Prater wasn't just the absolute go and and banged it from like 59 yards to win. I mean, Swift looked great. Route running was impeccable. And I think he has a lot of upside if he can maintain this role. His price on DraftKings is one of the first that I'm going to look to see when the prices are released. They'll already be released by the time this podcast hits your feed. So definitely check out his price if like he's sub 6K, like Joey said, or even in the low 6K range going against the Panthers next week. I think he'll be extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. Swift was not the only rookie running back in this Detroit Washington game who had a good day in fantasy. Antonio Gibson rushed 13 times for 45 yards, got two touchdowns, added four receptions. He was very productive. Two rushing touchdowns got him there in fantasy, but really it was JD McKissick's production for the football team that stood out to me. McKissick has now seen 29 targets over the last two weeks, and that was easy to dismiss. You know, a 14 target game last week is just an anomaly, but now we've seen it two weeks in a row. I think it's directly correlated to the way that Alex Smith plays, and now he is the starting quarterback for the foreseeable future in Washington. I think that, you know, McKissick's targets or something that we have to consider a legitimate trend at this point. Yeah, I definitely think it is a trend, not a trap. This dude, Alex Smith, literally looks to McKissick as his first or second read on every single play. And, you know, I just wish that they would use Antonio Gibson in that receiving role, you know, since he was a wide receiver in college. That would kind of make sense in my opinion, but... That's not how Ron Rivera sees it. So moving forward, I think how I'm going to view it is if we can project the Washington football team to stay competitive and stay in close games, it's going to be Antonio Gibson seeing the most touches. If we could project 
for Washington to be losing and losing big, it's going to be the McKissick show. So that's what we just have to consider moving forward. Now, the Washington football team is a bad team and they could be losing in every single game, which would make McKissick viable every week. But I think Antonio Gibson just has a higher ceiling and is a more explosive player. So I, I think I would still consider him weekly as well. It's just, it's just a tough situation for fantasy football, especially. To, to what you said, free Antonio Gibson. I mean, I know. I mean, he had more touches, though. I mean, Gibson had 19 touches. He had 17 17. touches, and McKissick had 15. So McKissick had more opportunity, though. He just didn't catch his his targets. He did have more opportunity. You're right about that. Um, and it only ended with 15 touches total. So Antonio Gibson touched the ball more technically, but McKissick did see more opportunity. You are right about that. But I mean, Antonio Gibson is the leading rusher for Washington I would assume at this point I think he's going to lead them in carries every single week it's just going to be if he can get in the receiving category or not and it's going to be hard with McKissick there yeah I mean I think that it's a role that he could fill it's just not the role the team wants to put him in so I think that they're both viable and I think I might be a little bit higher on McKissick's outlook than you because it isn't just the targets that he got he's not just strictly like a theoretic guy he had what like eight attempts as well he had a rushing touchdown from the two yard line before Gibson scored either of his. So they use him in that way as well. So you saw that he had a, you know, relatively low catch percentage. And that's because not all of his targets were just like strict dump offs. He was running a, like wheel routes down into the end zone that Alex Smith just missed him on. So I think that he has the potential to have some monster weeks, especially with this kind of target share, averaging 14 and a half targets over the last two weeks. Something to keep an eye on. And I definitely agree with Joey's take that. It's something that is probably game script dependent or maybe game environment dependent, you could say. So we'll keep an eye on it as it goes on. But McKissick is somebody that I'm definitely going to give more of a look to in the future. I don't think that it was just an anomaly what he has seen over the last two weeks. I think Mm -hmm. that that is the role the team wants him to be in. Now, we've got a few more messy backfields that we have to cover here all over the league. Let's go first to Cleveland. Nick Chubb. We already covered that. And besides ripping my heart out and spitting on it, stomping on it, throwing it in the road to get run over by a car a couple times, <laughs> he did have a productive first day back. 19 attempts for 126 yards and a touchdown. Kareem Hunt as well in this backfield matched him with 19 attempts, also going over 100 yards, had three receptions for 28 yards. And this was a more even split in terms of actual rushing work than we saw prior to Chubb's missed time between these two players you know was that a function of Nick Chubb potentially being quote-unquote eased back in as much as 19 attempts is being eased back in after his injury or will Kevin Stefanski be looking to get both of these players more evenly involved going forward I'm not too sure about what their splits were before Chubb got hurt. What was it, like 60-40? It was closer to that, yeah. Hunt was being utilized more as the receiving back, not so much matching Chubb in touches. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. And I mean, for this game specifically, the Browns were winning all game, so I think we could project for Kareem Hunt to see more rushing volume in a game that they're winning alongside Nick Chubb. And moving forward, I think Chubb will lead the team in terms of carries, and then Kareem Hunt obviously will lead both of them in receptions. So I I think them splitting even rushing volume is a trap, but Kareem Hunt is still 
you know, a top 10, maybe top five running back in terms of just pure talent. So it's hard to keep him off the field for long periods of time, which we saw today. Like they want to get both of these players involved, especially since Odell is out. You have to get your best players on the field. And their two best players on offense are Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. So that's just how I look at it. Like I said, it'll be Kareem Hunt in the in the receiving role. Nick Chubb in the rushing role moving forward. They have a decent schedule upcoming too. So I think we could see some spots where both of them get involved. Uh, You know, the Eagles next week, who knows? I mean, they just got ran over by Wayne Gallman and then the Jags, the Titans, they have the Giants and Jets in there as well. So I think that both of these players could finish the season strong. How about the Bucks backfield? Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette. Now this is something that I got completely wrong this week. I thought that it was time for the Fournette show. Fournette appeared to have taken full control of the 1A role in this backfield over the past two weeks. I thought that that was set in stone when Ronald Jones fumbled his first touch today, thought that it would be over for him, but no. Ronald Jones proceeded to pile up 192 yards and a touchdown on 23 carries, more than doubling Fournette's 10 touches. Consistent fumbling issues don't appear to have any bearing on Bruce Arians' desire to get Ronald Jones involved in this offense yeah I mean I thought it was the Leonard Fournette week as well I mean you kind of convinced me on that but my bad (laughs) it ended up being the Ronald Jones week and I kind of came to that realization like before lock and I put it in our discord chat like this was the road the rojo week didn't play him because I wasn't really too confident in that decision I played uh Fournette in one lineup uh so a mistake on my part and yeah I mean I, I think Bruce Arians is just willing to go back to Ronald Jones you know, at any given moment in time, even though, you know, he fumbles in prime time and he might not be as good of a running back as Leonard Fournette. Like some people think, I think I'm starting to flip flop on that take. I know we've trashed Ronald Jones in the past. I think he is worlds better than Leonard Fournette and he's the guy in Tampa Bay in my opinion and I I just had a feeling you needed one of the Bucks running backs in this cupcake matchup and it was Ronald Jones so yeah I mean you know I'm not the biggest film guy and I I've always thought that Leonard Fournette was like not great but better for sure than Ronald Jones but you know maybe what I missed and maybe what is you know become a priority for Bruce Arians is the upside that Ronald Jones has because I simply don't believe that Leonard Fournette has a 98 yard touchdown run in him Mm -hmm. I just don't think that he can do that personally I don't know am I bugging for that I I feel like maybe even with the fumbling issues Ronald Jones's upside is the reason that Bruce Arians prioritizes him and we saw him capitalize on that upside today with you know the best run in Bucks history is what they said on the broadcast (laughs) yeah I mean I think they are definitely prioritizing Ronald Jones uh ceiling and big playability over Leonard Fournette who can't even break a tackle of a 180 pound cornerback on a two yard out route <laughs> to the sideline five yards away from the end zone so oh god the Bucks are another team with a great strength of schedule especially for running backs coming up so if it's not too late for you to make trades I know that the trade deadline in our redraft league just passed maybe your league doesn't have one I think that Rojo might be worth targeting We can close out the running back discussion here with a new name, somebody that this will be the first time we've talked about on the podcast, Salvin Ahmad. Is that how you say that? Ahmed. Salvin? Salvan? Salvin Ahmed. 
Salvin Ahmed. 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 That's how I'm saying. Okay. It. Or Ahmed. All right. I think it's Ahmed. I actually I don't know, but I, no disrespect because I mean he looked great today, and it took injuries for Breda and Gaskin for him to get significant touches, but Howard was a healthy scratch. Obviously, the Dolphins have no interest in Jordan Howard. Patrick Laird, DeAndre Washington, they were non-factors. And it was Ahmed who, you know, ended up being the star here. And I think that he could be the number two behind Gaskin going forward. The Dolphins gave him 21 touches in his second NFL game. He went for 85 yards and a touchdown. And the Dolphins are undefeated since Tua took over. They're only one game behind the Bills in the division, and they're getting production anywhere they can on this offense. Say it with me. Running backs don't matter at all that's a fact it's just a simple fact of life is that you can easily replace running backs and selvin ahmed is you know a prime example comes in as what an undrafted running back sees 20 touches gets you know 85 yards in the touchdown looks very solid looks like an actual good player and i mean i think we've talked about it on the podcast before where you you know these good players coming out of college can just easily fall through the cracks due to whatever reason you know scouting maybe they're at a small school nfl coaches tend to get stuck with players or i don't want to say get stuck with players because they can release them obviously but they like get stuck in their ways of playing players that are already established in the nfl even though they might not have any upside or they haven't you know done shit to be frank but you know there there's numerous reasons we that we see undrafted guys just slip through the cracks and you know these can be productive and good players if given the opportunity i think he's one of those guys and i mean i played him in an afternoon only single entry i played uh two two single entries in the afternoon only slate played him in both because i just ran the same lineup came in at four percent ownership and i thought it was an easy play just pay down at running back to fit in the high price wide receivers in the afternoon only uh ended up working out so Shout out to him, but yeah, I just think it's, I think Ahmed is just a cover boy for running backs don't matter. Man, I'm just, I'm a little taken aback. I didn't know I was doing a pod with somebody sharp enough to play Salvin Ahmed on DraftKings. Mm-hmm. Um, I just need a minute. I need to take a Had breath to. after finding out about easy, you, man. Easy, easy wow. play. I mean. Congrats to you. I didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't win, but I played him. Hey, that's worth something. And, you know, just to your point about sometimes coaches getting stuck with these guys and, and, you know, I kind of want to shout out, you know, Brian Flores, who I think has actually done a really good job as a Lions fan who has seen firsthand what can happen when you hire the wrong Patriots cast off as your coach. (laughs) I think the Dolphins at least are in a good spot. Flores has made some gutsy calls. I mean, he is, you know, giving this undrafted rookie starts ahead of a guy like Jordan Howard, who is like the prime example of one of those guys. I don't think Howard's bad. But we've seen enough to know what he is. He's nothing more than average. So if Ahmed has a little bit of upside, yeah, put him in there. And, you know, they took out Ryan Fitzpatrick when they were winning, when the offense was rolling. And that decision paid off. Tua has, you know, gone 3-0. and Beat Justin Herbert in the, uh, you know, the battle for Joey's heart as which rookie quarterback he likes the most. <laughs> so... You know, shout out to Flores. I think he might be, you know, hashtag legit sharp Kyler Murray and his amazing touchdown to DeAndre Hopkins, which we'll talk about in a moment here, you know, gave the Dolphins some life there, you know, within one game of the Bills. And I think the Dolphins could make some surprising noise in this uh, AFC East down the stretch. 
Yeah, I definitely think they'll be an AFC East contender, especially if their defense keeps on playing, you know, the way that they are. They've been really good in the last couple of weeks against good offenses. So shout out to the Dolphins. Yeah, and shout out to my boy, Brian Flores, you know, a disciple of the Bill Belichick coaching tree. And maybe he has some DFS touts on his payroll that are helping him make these decisions, which I I like to think the analogy for what he's doing is gaining leverage on the field in DFS tournaments. He's gaining leverage in the NFL by not getting stuck in his ways and by improving his process. So we can all learn a thing or two from Brian Flores. Just always look to improve no matter the cost, no matter you know, if you're taking a man that needs to feed his babies off the field, as long as it gets <laughs> dubs, that's all that matters. That's a cold, hard fact. And, and I think that Flores is the man. Now, I mean, we've we've referenced it a few times, but let's get into it for real now and show some love to DeAndre Hopkins, who capped off his 28.7 point DraftKings performance off with a phenomenal 43-yard final second Hail Mary catch for a touchdown with three Bills defenders draped all over him. The most impressive catch that I've seen all year. Legitimate grown man shit out of DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah, I mean, shout out to DeAndre Hopkins. Like I said earlier, uh, help me cash in my single entry tournaments. Help me cash in the Millie Maker. And it worked out for me with DeAndre Hopkins uh, just being an absolute grown ass man, mossing three Bills defenders in the end zone to win the game for the Cardinals, who are now number one in the NFC West, if you didn't know that. Mm, I actually didn't. Yeah, so they now are number one above the Seahawks and the Rams, and that looks to be, you know, the tightest division race that we've seen over the last couple of seasons because all three of those teams have a realistic shot at winning the division. All three of those teams yeah. can can make the playoffs, especially if they do eight teams. With a potential, uh, you know, shutdown countrywide coming. But, I mean, this isn't like a po- – I mean, that's not even political. It's just – No, like, that's a fact. You know, <laughs> lo- looking outside the window. And, and, you know, they've said that they could expand it to 16 if substantial amount of games get canceled. And I would not be shocked one bit if that were to happen over the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, man, DeAndre Hopkins, what a catch. Reminds me of the A.J. Green catch in the end zone a couple of years Calvin ago. Calvin Johnson. With, you know, yep. Oh, yeah, Calvin as well. Um, I mean, the Richard Rodgers, Hail Mary <laughs> catch, just so, ma- so many amazing uh, catches. But DeAndre Hopkins is up there for sure. That was phenomenal. And, you know, when it happened, we live, you know, like an hour outside of Buffalo. I just heard like, just like the rain started coming down a little bit harder. Maybe it was just <laughs> the tears of all the Bills fans who live around us. Because God, that that's, that's a heartbreaking the, way to lose a game. That's a heart breaker for sure i mean bills fans were hype when stefan Diggs scores that touchdown with 50 seconds left or or whatever it was and then they just have kyler murray and deandre hopkins break their hearts into pieces and i and i'm here for it i love to see it (laughs) that's spoken like a true patriots fan and we'll talk about kyler a little more but i mean just off the top he scored like 18 fantasy points rushing his average was like the you know the most rushing fantasy points for a quarterback on a per game average ever with like 12 something so his average just shot up i mean he's on pace for one of the greatest seasons of all time in fantasy football we'll talk about that more on the week 11 preview show on Thursday. Two more topics to cover here. The first is a trio of wide receivers. Now, we've talked about the Steelers wide receiver trio and how unpredictable they've been all year on 
at least three or four separate episodes. I mean, it's been a topic of conversation all year. And we could talk about it again this week. You know, Claypool, Deontay, Juju, they all saw 10 or more targets this week. No clear-cut number one there. But, you know, I feel like we've beaten that topic to death. Let's talk about a new trio of wide receivers that I think may be impossible to differentiate between on a weekly basis. And that comes from the Bucks: Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, and Antonio Brown. This week, Evans leads the team in targets, Brown leads the team in catches, and Godwin leads the team in yards. How are you how are you sorting out between this? Is this going to just be another impossible situation to figure out another Steelers wide receiver situation if you will? It is exactly the Steelers situation. It's going to be hard to figure out who is the true alpha in that offense. I think a lot of it will be game plan specific and a lot of it will be just who Tom Brady focuses on for that specific week and we'll just never know I uh, in my opinion. We'll just never know if he wants to give Chris Godwin 10 targets and no Nobody else gets targets or you know you could say that with Antonio Brown or Mike Evans or even Gronkowski on some certain week so this is definitely a muddy situation and it's going to be hard to play any of these guys in DFS especially in cash games uh now in tournaments you can obviously stack the bucks uh we definitely mentioned the buck stack in the preview show too which you know, could have been a winning stack this week if you played Brady, you know, Mike Evans, Ronald Jones, etc. Uh, so shout out to us. But I think from a DFS standpoint, it's just going to be hard to play any of these guys. I think they're tournament exclusive, kind of like the way I'm looking at the Steelers trio. It's just, you never know where it's going to go. But the possibility for slate breaking weeks exists, even maybe a little bit more so because I mean, you know, Claypool, Deontay, Juju, they're all great, but I feel like you're cranking the talent up to a thousand with the switch over to Evans, Godwin, and freaking Antonio Brown as the number three guy there, which is just kind of crazy to even think about. And, you know, the only thing I have to say about this is that Antonio Brown looked really good. I, I got to see a decent amount of this game since it was one of the few early games, and I missed almost all of Antonio's first game back because, you know, we record the podcast during Sunday night football. So I didn't get to catch much of that last week, but man, Antonio Brown looked legit. I think he could have a really stellar close to the season here. I mean, he is still a top 10 wide receiver in NFL history, potentially top five. So yeah, I mean, this dude is just good, just legit good. So looking Chris yeah. didn't lose a step. Yeah. And it's going to be, it's going to be hard to, uh, to pick a wide receiver from this team. All right, Joey, let's close out the show with a little look ahead to next week now i don't root for injury you know i don't want drew Brees to be hurt but you know maybe just take take a week off settle down let the ribs heal up you don't need to rush back give us another week let us have please god let us have Jameis winston starting against atlanta next week this could perhaps be the only thing that could revive michael thomas's failing 2020 season <laughs> Do you think he would revive it though? Do you think that that Jameis would be better for Michael Thomas than Drew Brees since all Michael Thomas runs is slants because he's, you know, hashtag slant boy, aka slant boy, I should mm. say. And he's not really going to get targeted downfield if Jameis is the quarterback. Or do you think that, you know, he can expand his route tree to run some, some deep corner routes, some deep post routes and Jameis 
can hit him right in the money. I mean, I definitely think that if Jameis gets a start, he's missing Thomas on at least five throws by like <laughs> 10 yards plus. That's that's 100% for sure. I mean, I know he got the LASIK surgery, so maybe he's good. You know, that's always, an, that's another thing. We haven't really seen Jameis in a full start. He had like, what, like 10 attempts today, I think. So, you know, we could, we could still see Jameis come back. Maybe he is not blind anymore. That could help with the uh, Michael Thomas connection. But I do think that Jameis, no matter what, is an improvement on Drew Brees at this point in their careers. Maybe not in a win percentage for the Saints type way, but in a fantasy sense for the Saints offense. Absolutely. Especially if Traquan's injury is serious and Michael Thomas would have literally no excuse at that point not to be getting 12 plus targets on a weekly basis. And, you know, I mean, Michael Thomas could play the, you know, the quote unquote Chris Godwin role uh, that Jameis Winston, you know, made a top 10 wide receiver last year. So I think that it would be a boost for Michael Thomas, at least next week against Atlanta, mm-hmm. which is something that I really hope we get to see. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. And I, and I, and I was just kind of messing around. I, I think that Michael Thomas would have more upside at this point with Jameis Winston at the helm instead of Drew Brees, a guy that has been largely not good this season, I think. Yeah, I mean, definitely getting bailed out by Camaro's electricity. but yeah man uh that's gonna be it for this week i know you gotta go get to this patriots game you know maybe find some joy in your life i don't even know what the score is yet 10 to 7 patriots are winning they're not winning in favor no Uh, of course not why would we be winning (laughs) hey but maybe maybe uh you could come back get a little bit of cam excellence in the second quarter hopefully that happens for you um tough tough scene this week (laughs) but we'll bounce back and we will be back week 11 a little less pain in our voices that week we'll have have a few days to bounce back and get ready for this week 11 slate on DraftKings. you can catch that podcast on your podcast feed on thursday we are on every podcast platform whether that's spotify apple soundcloud stitcher podcast addict wherever you listen to podcasts we are there Like Joey said at the top of the show, you can support us by subscribing on any of those podcast platforms, our YouTube channel, by joining the DFS Dose Discord, which you can see in the show notes to this show or in the video descriptions of any of our YouTube videos. And yeah, make sure you follow us on Twitter as well, at the DFS Dose, as well as our personal Twitters. I am at Ben Hover, B-E-N-H-A-U-V-E-R. Joey, tell them where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at JoeyCarrionDFS. All right, guys. Hope that you had a better week than we did. If you had a similarly depressing week, maybe you found some solace in knowing you weren't the only ones. Thank you for listening, and we will be back to talk to you on Thursday.